grew up in the 1970s in a Mennonite community in Elkhart, Indiana. We only ate the traditional Pennsylvania Dutch fare of our grandparents, sauerkraut, funnel cakes, shoe fly pie, once or twice a year. At my parents' house, dinner was likely to be stir-fried tofu and broccoli one night, lentil stew the next. Ultra-liberal Mennonites, like my parents, were hardly Platt-Deutsch speaking covering-wearing Amish. Yet the community I was raised in was no commune either. My dad did sport lush sideburns, and my parents' politics were left of George McGovern's. But even the leftiest Mennonites raised their kids on hymns and social justice activism rather than sympathy for the devil and key parties. In 1976, a Pennsylvanian named Doris Jansen Longacre changed the diet of my parents, their friends, and all my Sunday school classmates with the publication of the More With Less cookbook. Informed by Francis Moore LePay's 1971 Diet for a Small Planet, as well as the experience of Mennonite contributors who had volunteered around the world, recipes in the More with Less cookbook combined whole grain ingredients with African, Asian, and Central American flavors, garnished with earnest discussions of how to live on a planet with limited resources. I was five when my mother bought her copy of More with Less. She was no purist. Yet, for the next decade, Velveeta cheese and Frosted Flakes disappeared from our pantry to be replaced by a host of strange brown substances. Much of what my friends and I grew up eating in the 1970s had all the characteristics that still define hippie food to me, like oatmeal whole wheat bread, homemade yogurt sweetened with a spoonful of my mother's own jam, date pecan granola, West African groundnut stew and vegetables pulled from our garden, grown without pesticides or herbicides, of course. My parents, like many of their generation, eased up on the restrictiveness of the more-with-less diet as their careers accelerated and their children grew more persuasive. Yet the consciousness around food that the cookbook inspired, of the political significance of what we were eating, of the sense that no cuisine is truly foreign, of the goodness of whole wheat flour and honey, remained. In fact, it has colored my entire career in food. So I ask, with all earnestness, how can you not love an avocado Havarti sandwich? The gush of the ripe avocado, the crunch of the toasted bread, the intense green flavor of the alfalfa sprouts, which smelled as if a field of grass were having sex. To me, lunch at the Sunlight Cafe evokes the same warm blanket comfort that macaroni and cheese does for other Americans. Lunch here isn't satisfying in the same way that a well-charred steak is, but it's satisfying just the same, earthy, fresh, and straightforward. A decade ago, over a meal of steamed vegetables and brown rice with tahini sauce at the Sunlight Cafe, a thought caught hold. Why didn't I accept hippie food as a unique, self-contained cuisine? Why did I treat it as an outdated curiosity instead of giving it the same respect and attention I did Vietnamese faux shops and French bistros? As I mulled the idea over, two more questions arose. Why did the counterculture start eating foods like brown rice, tofu, granola, and whole wheat bread in the 1960s and 1970s? And how did this cuisine spread across the country, reaching a tiny city like Elkhart, Indiana, in a matter of just a few years? Fifty years on, it may seem inconceivable how revolutionary a stir-fry of tofu and vegetables over brown rice could have been in 1967 and how alienating a Havarti and avocado sandwich on whole wheat bread would have seemed to most Americans. Just for comparison, I picked up a copy of the 1963 Good Housekeeping Cookbook at a used bookstore, 
It contained 166 pages devoted to meat dishes and 138 pages of desserts, compared to just 79 pages for salads and vegetables. Adventurous cooks could make shish kebabs and Transylvanian goulash, but the most stained recipes in my used copy were scalloped potatoes, pot roast, deviled eggs, and chicken cacciatore. The majority of recipes relied on boxes and tins. Turkey cashew casserole, for example, called for canned meat and condensed cream of mushroom soup. A dessert called rice chantilly was made with vanilla pudding mix, pre-cooked rice, and heavy cream. Although the 19th century and early 20th century saw the invention of canning, freezing, and other methods of processing food, World War II marked a turning point in American manufacturers' ability to manipulate our food into forms never seen in nature. Out of the war came the technological processes to produce dried soup powders and pudding mixes, salad oils, canned fruit.